You're listening to Shep Life with 1FM's Terry Cowley. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks so much for coming over from Euroa today to join us. Now, why did you want to kick off your segment with That's Amore? Well, it's a little bit of a... Uh, uh a little bit of a song between uh, my husband and myself. He's a comes from Italian background, so and he's a Dean Martin fan. So Amore was, uh, yeah, just a song that we sort of like to have fun, and probably it's our song, I suppose. It speaks to good times, doesn't it? Fun times, social times, which we're all hopefully going That's to right. have a bit more of in the near future. Now you mentioned your husband, John. Um, I understand that you are a you're a fourth generation roughy girl. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, born and bred in Ruffy, um, and then married the guy down the road and <laughs> stayed around. So still have a property at Ruffy. We live in Euroa and um, we've decided we're in paradise, so we'll just stay right where we are. So, yeah, very proud of our heritage here. Well, Ruffy is a, is a really sweet little place, isn't it? And does it still have the general store there? Um, it's, it has, uh, it's open from time to time, but it's more of a uh, eatering eatery sort of facility now more than a general store but it does have natural produce and and uh, local produce there sometimes from you know seasonally so yeah there's it's still an active little hub even though it's a tiny little community haven't been to ruffy in a very long time um, uh, maybe it's time to get back there now that we can do a few of that yeah. get out and about in regional victoria so um you you married a farmer well yes he was a farmer he's actually a builder um which was which was handy um Mind you, it was hard to get things hung around the house when you build a bit like when you marry a mechanic. No, seriously, uh, yes, a farmer, but we're actually uh, earth-moving contractors, so we've been doing that um, together as, as a family business for over 20 years. But um, from a farming, we're both from a farming background, I suppose is fair to say. So you met John, you had three kids, you've now got two grandkids. You got all that family stuff out of the way fairly early and then you decided you wanted to get into the career space and wow, what, what you have done since. Now you worked as a, um, a nurse uh, for 20 years. That's right, yes, yeah. Um, loved my nursing. Um, you know, worked locally, worked here in Shepparton, uh, Rangiroa, um, in general practice. Um, it really enjoyed pathology collection. And then when um, my disability started to make things a bit trickier, it meant that I needed a bit of a career change, um, which I, I miss my nursing. But at the same time, it's they say that we have several different careers in our lifetime. So it was time to move on to something else. You mentioned your disability. Um, we don't want to gloss over that because it's a really important part of who you are and what you're doing now. You are the Disability Accessibility Commissioner at Commercial Passenger Vehicles Victoria, essentially taxis. Yes, taxis, rideshare, Uber, they're all under the same umbrella now in commercial vehicles. I was going to ask you about um, Uber because, um, yeah, that must be a really tricky um, sector to regulate and to get across all those disability and accessibility Concerns Absolutely. And I think um, with the regulation changes, uh, legislation changes and the subsequent regulation, it's a real challenging space um, for competing for the market, I suppose. So I think in a way, our accessibility community that need um, specific needs, they're a growth industry. And um, although the COVID um, situation aside, it's actually meant that there's a lot more choice 
um, for people to choose where they travel and who they travel with. Um, notwithstanding that it's a challenge for the whole industry because it was a total, uh, you know, re- legislation changes and that was a bit tough um, for many in many ways. But we need to move forward as best we can and my job is to making sure that we're regulating and supporting the best, safe, effective uh, transport that we can for those with accessibility needs. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean by regulation changes? Yeah, so the legislation, new legislation came in uh, in July 2018. I was appointed in uh, January of that year um, to oversee and be specifically the Disability Commissioner. There are three commissioners um, and I'm specifically around uh, disability and access. So the legislation uh, changed where um, there was traditionally your, you know, the yellow taxis um, and it was called the Taxi Directorate and then it was called Taxi um, Services Victoria and all of these Uh, you know, um, periods of time that have gone through. But the government uh, sought to uh, seek some legislation changes and so that changed uh, a a lot of the um, landscape, I suppose, as you like, because it all became under one regulation. So that meant, in a way, that it's all on a um, one regulator uh, and multiple service Everybody can still deliver the service individually that they want. It's still their own uh, business. But it made the booking service providers through the legislation needing to have um, a bit more in place around code of conduct, things that you would expect that you would need um, in any business. Um, And as a regulator, it's our role to make sure that um, we're getting the best for the industry and the best for the consumer and hopefully that they meet in the middle and um, everybody has access to what they need. We can't expect every um, commercial passenger vehicle to be completely accessible, or can we? Look, I think the definition of accessible can be very different because um, while I'm a wheelchair user most of the time, um, I'm as individual as my fingerprint is to everybody else, so we all have differences. What we do know in Victoria is we have um, over 1.2 million Victorians with disability, um, and that doesn't include our senior Victorians, noting that not all seniors or people with disability have special needs to access. But when we think about disability, it's one in five of us, but 80% of those um, are non-visual disability. Wheelchairs only play a very small part, but we have over 800 um, wheelchair accessible vehicles across the state. All being said, COVID has made that really, really tough at the moment and we recognise that and we're working very closely with the industry and the consumers to make sure that we can get back on track. But accessibility can be mindful and supporting someone with a guide dog, for example, or someone with a fold-up wheelchair that doesn't need a uh, full van type vehicle uh, for that wheelchair um, trip Um, and they can just fold up their wheelchair and pop it in the back of the the taxi or the the vehicle, whatever it may be, of their choice. Um, So I think that it's it's an exciting time when we're recognising more around our diversity and that doesn't need to just rest on disability. We have, for instance, there are um, commercial passenger vehicles that provide service to women and children specifically so they're meeting a market there Um, and I think you know in this tough time as we enter out of or into whatever the new COVID normal will be I think that we'll be having uh, the industry thinking really hard around how it can make sure that it has a point of difference and that people want to travel with their service. Well uh, I would imagine a lot of people with disabilities are in some ways forced to use uh, taxis. You know, they may not be able to cope with um, public transport. Um, they may not be able to drive. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a they would be big users. Is that right? Absolutely. We have a multi-purpose taxi program here in Victoria. 
Um, and that program uh, is a specific uh, subsidy for we have about 200,000 um, people that are members, but there's only ever about 100,000 are active at one time. And this program supports people with severe or permanent disability. That can be sometimes someone who's had an accident who may recover, but they can have a subsidy for a period of time. But for the most part, it is people with severe and permanent disability. So this provides not only the person with the disability with a subsidy for um, some uh, subsidy contribution to the cost of the trip, but it also incentivises the commercial passenger vehicle to be able to want to pick up, for example, someone in a wheelchair. And at the moment, the government has a uh, support package out during COVID and they've actually doubled the lifting fee. So before I even get into a commercial passenger vehicle, a wheelchair accessible vehicle, that vehicle will be receiving um, just over $40 just to be popping me in, which is double the normal rate. So there's lots of incentives there to help um, there be the service that the diversity of our community need. I understand that... uh the trains aren't necessarily very well set up and that often people in wheelchairs are forced, well, not forced, I mean, it's good that there is a service there, but they're, they're having to go into taxis, say, for example, from Seymour to Shepparton. Mm. That seems like a, a stupidly expensive way to do things if we could just make our trains a little bit more accessible. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, um, you know, and I too have had um, train rides that have been less than satisfactory. Um but at the same time, it's about the infrastructure that, infrastructure that we have. And um, usually uh, changes occur a lot easier with more population. And the fact is that we don't... Uh, it, it's a challenge for um, our services to be keeping up to date. But we really do have a lot of old, um, narrow doorways nowhere for you know it's not just people with um, wheelchairs it's mums with prams it's people with walkers it's um, guide dogs all of these things you need the extra space and and um, space that you can be safe and uh, enjoy your journey but I must say that um, Department of Transport is working really really hard Um, there are three ministers that uh, have portfolios across transport and they are all working really hard together and individually in their um, in their portfolios to see us improve the services that we have and that includes the infrastructure but it doesn't happen overnight and it is a bit frustratingly slow for us in rural communities. I would imagine could be a really demoralising experience if you're trying to catch a train and you're basically told you can't get on the train. That's right. And it was only, you know, several years ago um, where there were people being offered, well, look, what we can do is um, pop you in the baggage compartment and that's just not um, suitable. That doesn't happen now, of course, but people trying to help, this is all we've got to offer you. Um, And I think the thing is too, it's around the comfort that's within these vehicles around temperature control as well. These are things that might seem, well, air conditioning, but air conditioning is important for everybody. And particularly if you have access needs, it can, and or younger or older, can really impact your, well, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to get down to the appointment that I need to because it's just all too hard. Um, And the cost to be able to get to Melbourne is not a cheap function. There are lots of supports out there to help people, but they're, they're really called upon and they're, we're, we're pretty light on in some areas. And um, in our shire, uh, Strathbogie Shire, we're, you know, um, three and a half thousand square kilometres and we only have, you know, one or, or two wheelchair accessible vehicles, but we only, we have the two lines going through from Shepparton to Seymour and Albury to Seymour, but... That, lim- that service is very limited around you. They have to catch it early in the morning and you can't get the train until very late at night. Um, and that's not always um, appropriate for everyone. 
Just an issue about striving towards equality, isn't it, really? Absolutely. And as I mentioned before, as individual as our own fingerprint, but we all still have a right to inclusion and we all have a right to safety in no matter what we do, including transport, health, education, employment, um, and the list goes on. And I think when we look at the social model of disability, it is not our disability that is uh, disabling, it's the environment and the infrastructure that is around us. And I think we need to, sometimes it all feels a bit too hard, oh, well, we can't put this ramp in. And ramps and wide doorways doesn't just cut it for every every uh, you know well we've done that tick tick that's part of the story for some but not all it's about other things that are very simple it can be signage it can be quieter environment for people um, particularly who may have uh, triggers of a p- particular time and they just might need a more subtle lit area in a in a facility that's providing them service we need to be thinking about us as individuals but we also need to be thinking about and respecting the diversity of what we need and everybody has a right to feel safe and everybody has a right to feel that where they're receiving service that they're informed of what their needs may be but listening to the person as an individual so um taking these concerns uh, on board at the beginning rather than trying to retrofit environments to absolutely people, people's yeah. needs we- there's some great work being done by the Office of Disability and Department of Health and Human Services and, and uh, the building authority around standards, um, which are really important and you need, you know, we want good standards. But some things, you know, you would, we're not allowed to say the word common sense anymore because it's not common if everybody doesn't know it and people don't know what they don't know and this is where we've got fabulous consultants now fabulous people that work in our communities and I'd like to thank every council uh, particularly in northeast Victoria that have a disability ad- advisory council and they they provide their individual councils and then to government wonderful uh, advice and they're a resource. Um, Sometimes they're underutilised but we've got the people with the lived experience. We need to give them the opportunities to be heard by the decision makers. So we talked a bit about advocating for for disability in the different roles you're in in particular in relation to commercial passenger vehicles you're also a on the on the board of directors for ambulance victoria you've been a cfa volunteer for 20 plus years i mean i could keep going on and on listing your many listing your many achievements and positions that you've held you're also a former mayor and councillor of strathburt bogey from 2008 to 2016 you received an oam this year for your work in the disability sector but also in local government and for breast cancer research i know that um We've spoken about uh, breast cancer fundraising on this program with you before. Um, Not a career path you foresaw, apparently. Can I take you back to... um, I was really doing some research about you last night and I was was surprised to see that that your disability seems to have uh, dated back to a, a tiger snake bite. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I heard you talking to Golden Broken Catchment earlier today and yes, the frogs and snakes, but yes, look, unfortunately um, for me, I was uh, in the wrong spot at the wrong time and um, I was, was beaten by a tiger snake up at Ruffy. But um, when, when was this? This was, uh, oh, we're up around about uh, nearly 14, 15 years ago. So it's um, quite some time and then slowly things started to sort of change and uh, and uh, so I have sort of a neurological uh, deficit in in uh, similar to MS type sort of um, challenges. But I'm 
I'm still able to speak and communicate and all things good. So my, my uh, level of disability or my challenges are, uh, don't slow me down, but they're a bit frustrating because it has changed life quite a bit. But um, yeah, do please, uh, in this upcoming summer, make sure you've got your bandages ready um, and uh, you know check yourselves when you come in from the garden and the farm. A lot of people get bitten and they don't realise. Um, so yeah, please take care, everybody, because um, these snakes can take your you know, can change your life if you do get bitten. I haven't heard about, maybe I'm just ignorant, but I didn't know that snake bites could cause neurological conditions. Yeah, different snakes um, affect you in different ways. So depending on the venom, and they all bite differently, like some, you know, need to bite and and the venom comes through their fangs into the skin or others need to actually sort of chew, for want of a better word, and the the venom's pumped around their fangs. And some affect um, uh, the blood clotting and, and cardiac function and some are more neurological. Um, but basically, not good. If you get bitten by a snake, it's probably not No, of not course good. not. Or a poisonous <laughs> snake, of course not. Or any snake is not good. I, I realise that. If it's not too, too traumatic, can you take us back to the circumstances of of the bite? Well, yeah, look, it was... It's uh, well, We have a... Um, a uh, going over 40 years, uh, Ruffy Jim Carner up at Ruffy, very proud, and we have an apple bobbing competition. Um, and we had some apples on our apple tree and we live not far from our recreation reserve. So I thought, well, Nick, we need some apples. So I raced to our farm um, orchard to grab some apples, but unfortunately um, we had sort of some sprays that come onto the lawn and we think that possibly this snake had sort of got a bit caught in the in the sprays coming on i've just walked through a shady area felt something touch my leg but didn't you know it wasn't a painful experience or a painful bite but i felt felt something and then i looked down and i had to do the whole steve and things stand cl- stand really still you know absolutely going oh my god with his you know head all flattened out of this tiger snake looking up at me basically and um with only a tiny bit of its tail on the ground and it's sitting up like a cobra type thing and it was I was sort of like this is this doesn't seem real anyhow so I waited until it sort of um you know lost interest and moved on and then ran and as I was running I looked down and I could see um you know blood running down my legs from two two bite or the fang marks and I thought oh running's not probably a good thing to do best slow down um, fortunately, our youngest son at the time was fishing on a little dam bank not far away. Mind you, all amongst rushes where there's probably this snake's family were headed. But um, but we have uh, bandages out and around in glass jars around and um, the kids just went into action and um, got my husband uh, over the UHF radio, came in, bandaged me up and then headed our way to to the hospital here in Shepparton. And, um, but yeah, it was pretty traumatic. It wasn't nice looking back at the kids thinking, hmm, this, you know, this this could be very serious, but I'm extremely fortunate, um, and I know that know that. But yeah, the bandaging was um, really uh, really important to know your first aid around snake bites or any bite. What were the uh, effects? The effects immediately were um, just numbness and tingling, um, and a little bit of changes in um, some of the uh, clotting factor of some of the tests that they do. Um, and then it was sort of a, a, a game around: well, do we give antivenom or we don't? And and just sort of toying around that, and a lot of monitoring. And then I probably over the next few months things started to change. I have to say that um, our local vet was really really helpful and was actually spot on, <laughs> more so than possibly the doctors um, were aware, because obviously the vets see probably a lot more animals and um yeah they were pretty right on with um you know some of the things that would be a challenge for me um and it's 
started on my left side, left side of weakness and, and other changes. Um, and now I can walk around um, with, you know, some walking aids, but um, I do fall over a fair bit. So, um, and the fatigue and all of these things that are very similar to an MS type um, condition. So it, and it's evolved over the few years. Um, some, some years I'm okay, you know, not too bad and things are stable and then things might progress for a bit. Um, but I do have to, you know, pace myself um, and I do have to, we have to listen to our bodies. Sometimes we want to keep pushing them. Um, but I think it's really important that we still enjoy life, but we've got to be practical about what we can and, and can't do. And I don't know, I'm in my mid fifties almost. So I think that's part of the thing too. Maybe I'm blaming a snake for what is um, me getting to the, you know, to the twilight years. Oh, I don't think you're in your twilight years by any stretch of the imagination, Colleen. Um, but it's a really good cautionary tale because I just had no idea personally that that uh, you think that, you know, if you get bitten by a snake, you have anti-venom and then you're ha- you know, happy as Larry sort of thing. That's obviously a very naive way of uh, looking at that. Yeah, there are, there are surprising... There are a lot of people in, in our region that I've come across and it's, I was bitten by a brown snake, I was bitten by this, I was, and your redback spiders, all of these things, they're, they're part of our environment um, and, you know, I suppose it's a bit like sharks in the sea. If you're going to go in the sea, if you're going to be around bush or scrub or, or on our case, it was lawn, but it was just the snake was going from A to B and got caught and was a bit angry before I encountered him. Um, but at the same time, I think we... You know, we don't let that um, stop us from doing things, but we just need to be prepared. It's like our first aid kit, if we cut our finger, first aid kit, make sure you've got a bandage or several bandages that you can bandage your limb and that does make a huge difference, the first aid and the amount of time that you can get to some help. So it's about, it's about uh, putting a fairly um, firm tourniquet um, between sort of your heart and the bites, yeah, bite no, site? Yeah, they don't do the tourniquet so much okay. now. So it's a very firm bandage. So let's say it was um, there was a bite just above you. I'm not a first aid specialist, but, you know, I've read about it. Um, but uh, so let's say you were bitten, you know, sort of um, just below the knee. You would um, bandage very firmly from the bottom of your foot right up as high as you could um, quite firm like you would for a sprained ankle but no tourniquet or anything like that now and quite um you know just keep uh compression on there and popping a little mark on the bandage where you roughly you thought the bite might be and keeping the limb immobile yeah that's it and getting trying to get help to come to you but if not moving as little as possible but certainly getting on the phone to the to the to the uh, emergency services and they'll do, they'll assist you in anything that you need to know but the big thing is is to try to keep calm which is very difficult but yep. keep calm and like anything keep calm and uh, things will be okay it used to be a situation where you had to know what kind of snake it was for the anti-venom yeah. but it's it's one size fits all now i understand i think it i think it's generally is i mean certainly um we don't want anyone catching the snake or, or no. anything like that but if you don't know it's okay there are testing that can um assist with what's the right right treatment for that individual at that time so very timely advice at this time of year uh, don't be too scared but just maybe brush up on your first aid advice absolutely it's probably a good idea now COVID-19 seems like every chat turns to that these days um you you've tweeted recently about lessons that we can learn from the pandemic age and the importance about involving people with disabilities I mean really not just them but all people in having to be involved in disaster readiness what are your thoughts on that what what have we learned from this time yeah there's been, um, yeah, I think COVID, there are some good things come, you know, from challenges um, and from um, recent bushfires that we had um, last fire season, which we're going to see 
season on season now. It's part of our life. Um, but I think person preparedness is um, what it's all about. And it's about the person, um, that person is person-centred preparedness. So it's about my plan, what's irrelevant for me, what supports do I need to be considering. And it's about where we live, particularly in rural areas or fire-prone areas, and that's becoming more and more closer to urban areas as well. But certainly in northeast Victoria, where many of us will be living, where we need to be thinking about the fire season coming up and we need to be having a conversation with our local brigades and our local CFA. There's a powerful load of information out there, but there's a recent program that CFA's been working on, which we know... Um, has been um, assisted by the COVID pandemic and other um, disasters, including flood, around the person-centred. What does the person need to consider where they are, where they live on a particular, whether it's a code red day, what's going to be their plan? We all talk about the fire-ready plan, but for people with accessibility needs or disability or those from called communities or other or senior Victorians, we need to be making sure that we've got the service there and the conversation that we all need to be having to go, what if this is happening? What are my plans? And do people know my plans? Because we want to know that people are safe. We can't rely on a on a fire truck rolling up at our door to go, it's time to leave or we're here to protect your house. That just is not going to be, that's just not viable. It do, it's not going to happen. They will do everything they can to do that. But in the heat of fighting, uh, you know, fighting a fire, it's very difficult when they're worried about, you know, um, we need to get in to see if that person's there. You know, we have uh, registers for vulnerable people registers, but there's very, very few people, very few Victorians that are on that. So we all need to know our community and have a little bit of a plan that you share with others so we know if you're safe. It's just an, another complexity, I suppose, that we need to consider ahead of time. Absolutely. But we all have a right to live where we want to and we um, supported we should be able to do that. But we all do need, we all have a responsibility with disability or without or access needs to making sure that we're um, prepared for life, but certainly prepared for emergencies as well. What are some of the good things you've seen come out of this COVID-19 space? Well, I think the virtual space, um, I still forget the mute button quite often. That's, you know, you're on mute. But... Um, <laughs> I think it's joined people into conversations that would not have had that opportunity and I, for one, will be making sure that I can, in anything that I do, that we can keep that going. Um, so I think that's a good thing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, uh, Colleen, and thank you. It's great to know that you're out there advocating for people with disabilities and others. Terrific. And, thank you um, for having me. keep doing the good work you do. You've been listening to the Shep Life Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on SoundCloud. Find it on the 1FM Facebook page or search Shep Life Group on Facebook. Once approved, you'll be kept up to date with links to future shows. If you'd like to hear the show live, you can tune in to 98.5 on your radio or stream through fm985.com.au or the TuneIn app on your Android or iOS device. Friday mornings from 9am to midday.